Smarties. Today, we are so excited to welcome back licensed psychologist Donna Henderson. And we're excited to welcome for the first time on this podcast, though it feels like we've absolutely connected with her on the podcast before because we have so many mutual friends, to welcome Dr. Sarah Wayland, who is a special needs care navigator, certified relationship development intervention consultant, and parenting coach. They are the co authors of two books that are coming out in June and July of. 2023. The books are titled Is This Autism? A Guide for Clinicians and Everyone Else. And the book coming out in July is called Is This Autism? A Companion Guide for Diagnosing. They share their story of how they came to be co-authors and they further discuss their five layers of understanding of autism. They share the strengths of autistic people. They discuss the importance of understanding not just cognitive and academic strengths, but also highlighting and valuing character and behavioral strengths of autistic people. They share how to support strengths and creative accommodations that require trial and error, metacognitive awareness, and flexibility. We are so honored to get to continue the conversation with them on Patreon, where they share their three tips for parents and three tips for professionals who work with autistic people. We have highlighted their books in the show notes of this episode, so if you are interested in pre-ordering or getting these books as they are are now out, depending when you listen to this podcast, please go and support them and the conversations that they are igniting and sparking. If you would like to listen to our extended conversation with them on Patreon, please sign up on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Learn Smarter Podcast. Patreon is the way that you can support the work that we do here at Learn Smarter Podcast. For a $5 a month donation, you can get access to all our previous extended conversations, including this one with Don and Sarah. And for a $10 monthly donation, you can get episodes a week early. Let's dig in. You want to learn faster, but sometimes working harder is just not the answer. You have to learn smarter. The Educational Therapy Podcast. Hi, Smarties. Welcome to episode 261 of Learn Smarter, the Educational Therapy Podcast. I'm Stephanie Pitts. And I'm Rachel Cap. And today we're really excited and sit back and just wait for this one. We are <laughs> welcoming back Donna Henderson. And if you don't remember, Donna was on episode 141 and 142 and a Patreon. And those were wonderful episodes. So Donna is a licensed psychologist and works in the DC area at the Stixrood Group. And we are also joined by Dr. Sarah Whalen today. This is the first time she's on our podcast, and she does all the things. Ready, guys? <laughs> she's a special needs care navigator, a certified relationship development intervention consultant, and a parenting coach. I love all the things, Sarah. Those are great. <laughs> so today we're going to talk a little bit more about autism, and we're so excited to have you on and hear all of your brilliance. They have a couple of books coming out this summer, and if you're listening in the past, it will be out in June and July of 2023. And the first book is, Is This Autism? A Guide for Clinicians and Everyone Else. How great is that title? (laughs) And the second book in July is, Is This Autism? A Companion Guide for Diagnosing. So we are thrilled Welcome, you guys. Thanks for having us. Nice to be back. Since Donna has already sort of been introduced to you 
in 2021. Let's start with Sarah today. And Sarah, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us who you are, how you got to be who you are, and what you do. Okay. Let's see. I started out my life doing research with people who had had strokes and had language processing problems after having strokes and trying to figure out ways to help them understand spoken language. So that's, I got my start that way. Then uh, I took a brief detour as a software designer and had children because academia wasn't so friendly to having children. And so I had two boys and I went back to the world of academia studying second language learning and my kids were diagnosed with autism an alphabet soup of a thousand other things. And so, I started diving in to try to learn more about autism, which I had known some about because of my professional work, but not a lot. And I was having a really hard time figuring out how to help my kids and what kind of therapies and trying to understand what I knew about the research and how those therapies mapped on to the research. Um, And I was having a really rough time with it. And But, you know, we sort of figured our way through it. And I realized that it would be helpful for other people who maybe didn't have a background in research psychology to be able to learn um, the kinds of things that I, I knew. So, I started my business, which is guiding exceptional parents and do all the things <laughs> in, in the context of that. And I also partnered with my friend Penny Williams doing online courses for parents uh, at the Behavior Revolution. Um, my kids are both adults now. And so, I've been through many stages and still thrashing around in the young adult stage, but that's that's sort of who I am and where I came from. All right, Donna, let's hear your background and your story a little bit. So, I am a licensed psychologist and um, I work in Maryland and I'm a neuropsychologist. So, I see children, adolescents and adults. And like Sarah, I didn't actually do a lot of autism work for the first part of my career. I didn't have much training in it, which I think is typical for a lot of clinicians. And I sort of avoided it, which I think is typical for a lot of clinicians until I started realizing, wait a minute there's a lot of autistic people coming into my office and they don't know they're autistic and I need to learn about this. Simultaneously, sort of a little bit after my professional growth, I started looking around at some of my own children at home thinking, huh, some of what I'm learning really applies to you. Mm -hmm. And uh, two of my three children have since been diagnosed as autistic. So I learned at home and professionally sort of simultaneously. I love to hear about professional collaborations between women, because obviously Steph and I have a deep personal friendship, but we also have professional endeavors together. And I would love to hear how you guys sort of found each other. And are you my (laughs) co-author? Sarah's holding up a book. It's great podcasting, but I'm going to describe it. It's it's the Are You My Mother book, right? But you just wrote Are You My Co-author over it. Okay, tell us. Tell us how you guys found each other. Do you want me to tell it, Sarah? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so, and it's the, the P.D. Eastman book, Are You My Mother? Okay. And I forgot what kind. It's like a little bird and he falls out of the tree and he wanders around from animal to animal asking each different animal, are you my mother? Are you my mother? Are you my mother? Yeah. So I got this idea to write this book. I think it was about four or five years ago and I started working on it, but I knew I needed a co-author. I have ADHD. I knew there was absolutely zero chance I was going to do this by myself. And so I went through about maybe six months of looking at everybody in my life 
going, are you my co-author? Are you my co-author? Are you my co-author? That is so funny. Some people came close, but weren't quite right. And I was chatting with Sarah one day and all of a sudden it hit me like a ton of bricks. You're my co-author. You are. (laughs) And I asked her and before I even got the question out of my mouth, she said, yes, 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 yes. Because I really, really wanted to be a co-author on the book, but I uh, I wanted Donna because it's her baby. I wanted Donna to be really sure I was the right co-author before I inserted myself. <laughs> so I love that. And then tell us about, now this is just for me, but that's why we have a podcast so we can ask questions we want to ask of <laughs> other people. Tell us a little bit about the writing process. How did that work between the two of you? How did you guys, because we talk about on the podcast a lot, how I bring certain strengths to the table and Steph has other strengths that she brings to the table. So I'm curious how that dynamic sort of emerged with you guys. You want me to start? Sure. So the first part of the first book goes through the diagnostic criteria, you know, point by point. And Donna had already been thinking a lot about that stuff. And so she had started drafting uh, those chapters. And uh, when we first decided we were going to be <laughs> co-authors on this book, there were several stages, actually. So initially, one of the things we knew is we really wanted a lot of autistic voices in our book. And so we were trying to find autistic people, you know, who could share their experiences with us. Um, so that we could understand what it feels like to be autistic from the inside as opposed to what we see on the outside. And so we were, you know, trying to, you know, put together people we knew who are autistic, but also reaching out and and finding people who were willing to serve on our clinical advisory board and our autistic advisory board. So we had all these people, like 30 people or something, providing us with their experiences and then also reading drafts of chapters as we wrote them. So Donna had certain chapters that were her chapters. She did the first draft and then I would read through them and, you know, we'd talk about the organization and such. I had some chapters that were mine. And then we had all these quotes from autistic people that we were trying to integrate into those chapters to make sure that it, you know, you could really tell what it feels like to be autistic. It was a real eye opener for me, for sure. So one of the things Donna did really well that I really loved is that you can offer a suggestion or, you know, a comment or whatever. And she's just so open to, you know, whatever it was I was saying. So I would say, well, I changed it. So I <laughs> I had a postdoc advisor who used to say there's no urge that is harder to resist than that of editing or whatever, something like that. And uh, so I'm, I'm kind of a ruthless editor. And Donna is just like, yeah, that works. Or, you know, this doesn't quite get at what I was talking about. Let's brainstorm about it. We met every Friday um, for three hours for two years and just worked on the book. Sometimes we were just typing away on our stuff or reading the other person's stuff. We would send each other chapters when we were done. So, that was kind of how our process worked. And then we sent it off to everybody on our advisory board. So, we had like these 30 people who were reading through things and also making comments on it and, you know, giving us suggestions and advice. And that was invaluable. We learned so much. I am such a better writer after this whole process. It's really been an incredible process. Can I chime in with something? I just flashed back as you were talking as we got started and um, I talked to Bill Sticksrude. Have you guys interviewed Bill yes. or Ned? Yeah. Yes. 
So Bill Stixard and Ned Johnson, who wrote The Self-Driven Child and What Do I Say? We'll tag their episode in the show <laughs> yeah, notes. Amazing, amazing books. Bill is my mentor and dear friend. And I was talking to him about like, so how do you do this? Like, how do you write a book with someone who you're friends with? And he said, here's the thing. You want someone who has similar values, but different strengths. It was such good advice. And that's what we found out. Sarah and I have the same values in terms of what we wanted out of the book and out of the process, but we have very, very different strengths and that helped a lot. I love that. Thank you for sharing that with us because I love hearing about particularly women collaborators. I think it's important that we have those conversations sort of publicly. Okay. Now back into the content. Oh, you want to add one thing? Okay. Our very good friend, Jamel, also made significant contributions to both books. And her contributions were specifically about cultural considerations in the various chapters. And so we we definitely want to give a shout out to Jamel too. Great. So I guess let's start at the beginning, which is how do you guys conceptualize what autism is? It's so much more common than we realized it was even 10 years ago. The first time I think that there was a prevalence estimate for autism was in the late 1960s. And it was something like one in every 2,200 kids, like very rare, right? And in about the year 2000, it had gone to one in 150. And I was thinking about this earlier. The last time we all spoke a few years ago, Mm -hmm. it was about one in, I want to say 59, maybe 54. And The CDC um, updated their website last week saying it is now one in 36. Every classroom probably has an autistic kid in it. Wow. It's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. So before I even start into like, how do we conceptualize it? it, I conceptualize it as common. As common. (laughs) And and my next thought is, boy, does every field need more training Mm -hmm. on it. Because like you were sharing, Donna, there isn't enough discussion on it for how common it is. But that sort of stuff can take a minute. People are funny about the diagnosis. You know, they are scared of it. They think it's something it is not. Um, So there's lots of stereotypes about what autism is and isn't, which is thus the title of our book. Mm -hmm. So getting you know, information out there. And that's, that's our shared mission (laughs) about what autism is, is so important. Okay, so let's talk about it. It's common. What is it? And what is it not? What are the fears? So how I conceptualize it is sort of in five layers. Okay, so the first layer is you have a different type of nervous system, you are born with a different type of nervous system. Okay, then the second layer would be How you move through the world is different because you have a different type of nervous system. How you experience the world, how you process it, how you respond to it. This can include your experience of external sensations like noise and textures, your experience of internal sensations like hunger or pain. It can affect your movement patterns, your communication styles and preferences and the way that you process information, right? So that's the second sort of layer as I see it. Then the third layer is that these individuals have to live in a world that was not designed for them. So it has nothing to do with their bodies. Now we're we're thinking about the world. 
And we talked about this last time. It's a right-handed world. Mm -hmm. And so if you're left-handed, it's a little bit harder. It is. I am (laughs) (laughs) left-handed. You have this mismatch between your nervous system and the world. And then that creates a lot of problems like vulnerability to being overwhelmed and being misunderstood and misunderstanding situations and being anxious and having social problems. So that's the third layer. And I'd say then the fourth layer is all the blame and shame that comes along with it because this is a minority group. And so we, the non-autistic people, I'm assuming all four of us here in this conversation are non-autistic. We inadvertently blame and shame people who are different from the norm. Why are you so sensitive? Why can't you make friends? (laughs) Why are you so quiet? Why aren't you looking at me? You're so smart. Why you can't succeed? That's what I mean by blame and shame. And that sort of the last layer, I think, is that the autistic people then internalize the blame and shame and they blame themselves, which is, I think, the saddest part for me. And so that's how I conceptualize autism. I would add that we know that autism affects every aspect of an individual's experience. It's not just about their social interactions, but their sensory processing, how they manage information, how they communicate, their physical health, their emotional experience. We know that it manifests differently in every person. There are literally endless variations to autism. And we know that there are people who don't look like the stereotypical presentation of autism, but are absolutely autistic. And that's the population Sarah and I have written about and talk about. And finally, I'd say it's easy to focus on the challenges of autism, but autistic people have great strengths as well. And it's important for all of us to pay at least as much attention to the strengths. I would love to dig into that more. And maybe Sarah, you can share some of this too, because of what you said earlier about the fear around the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So what can you share about the blessings of this diagnosis that can happen for a family or a person? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things about the strengths is they're kind of the flip side of the challenges. So a lot of it depends on the environment that you're operating in. So, for example, you know, Donna talked about sensory differences, for example. So, you know, autistic people will notice visual details that other people miss and sometimes even see things that others cannot. You know, in the auditory realm, uh, they may have absolute pitch, very good at sound engineering, good at linguistics and in particular phonetics, hearing the um, differences in how you pronounce things. Diagnosing mechanical problems, listening to the whir of an engine and, you know, being able to hear the difference when it's not working the way it's supposed to. You know, being really good at, you know, a lot of autistic people are super tasters or super smellers. You know, one of the things Donna said is, you know, they get criticized for being too sensitive. But you know what? If you're really good at smell and taste, you might be a foodie and really good at helping people understand, you know, what's going on in food and things like that. Touch, you know, things like texture, woodworking or cooking. You think about kneading bread and getting that texture just right when you're preparing it. Likewise, proprioception. So some people are very good at knowing how their bodies operate in space. Um, so they might be incredible athletes, for example, or maybe 
uh, they're less sensitive to the way, you know, clothing feels. So they're really into wearing clothing that's very fashionable. And it doesn't matter if it's too tight because they really just don't care. <laughs> so, so, you know, then there's also just the way they think, you know. And one thing I do want to say is autistic people don't have all these things. Like this is a list of possibilities. And so you want to think about these things as possible for a person, but of course, they're not going to have all of them. So uh, one thing we see often are, you know, attention to and memory for details, baseball statistics, train schedules, history, things like that. Those are all things that you see a lot of autistic people have, you know, that kind of information just right at the top of their head. Really good at making associations. So they notice patterns that other people miss. That pattern finding ability is really, really helpful in certain circumstances. Also, a narrow and intense focus of attention. When they get into something, man, they're going to get into it. They're going to study it. They're going to be really, really, you know, doing a deep dive. Uh, we call this autodidactic learning where they are self-driven and really go deep on things so they can become, you know, very expert in different topics. They're not as distractible unless they have ADHD plus autism. And that uh, pattern recognition I mentioned earlier, there's a, a way of thinking called systemizing or systematizing. Um, in England, they call it systemizing. But, you know, things like recognizing patterns that are working or not working, um, textile design, for example, you could think about that being something. And really good at, at reasoning through problems. So scientists and engineers, there are a lot of autistic people in those fields because they're so good at trying to figure out like what's making this happen and really teasing that apart. And, you know, going along with that is, you know, intense interests, right? They have a deep desire to learn and intensity of focus and energy and memory um, to develop this encyclopedic knowledge of a topic. Also, some autistic people are just remarkably consistent, right? They're really good at organizing things. They're great if you need something done the same way every time. Mm. And, you know, people think of autism as, you know, difficulties with social communication. But because of those challenges, uh, many autistic people actually have real strengths in social communication. So, they can be really straightforward and direct and honest. So, you know where you stand with them. There's no trying to figure out, ooh, you know, do they really like me? Do they not really like me? Like, you just know where you stand. Strong sense of integrity shows up a lot, and they will fight for causes that are important. Greta Thunberg, for example, right? Less susceptible to peer pressure, accepting of difference, and really concerned about social justice, for example, and a keen attunement to the emotions of others. And I, I want to drill in on that a little bit. There's a misperception that autistic people are not attuned to others' emotions. They are very attuned to others' emotions, some of them. And sometimes it's so overwhelming that they kind of have to shut it out just to cope. And I know you talked about this in the previous episode with um, Donna, but, you know, the thing that's hard is they know there's a big emotion in the room, but they may not be so clear about where that emotion is coming from. So, that context, you know, just determines why somebody is feeling the way they are, maybe something that happened to them and so on. So, that keen attunement to the emotions of others, um, a lot of autistic people report that being a huge part of their day-to-day -day existence. And then to get 
accused of not being empathetic is particularly egregious. So another, you know, a couple of things that are just great are a sense of humor that involves wordplay. So puns or irreverence, just being really silly. So some of our favorite comedians are autistic. And then, you know, resilience and perseverance, because it's hard to get through the day and these folks show up. They just keep showing up no matter how hard it is. And that is pretty amazing. First of all, that list was amazing because it just brought so many things together in so many different ways. But I'm interested now in strategies. Let's talk about you have the diagnosis or maybe you suspect the diagnosis, especially after hearing that list of how many things that autistic people can be really, really good at. So what are some strategies to build on some of those strengths? Where should they be looking? How should they be approaching it? Yeah, and that was an important part of our book, by the way, to have a chapter on the strengths of autistic people, because so often we focus on the challenges, and there are so many strengths. So, so yeah, you know, one of the things that's important, and this is true of any disability, and so it's true in autism as well, is to figure out what strengths that individual has, right? So, highlighting that individual person's strengths and making sure that they know they are good at whatever it is they're good at, and, you know, help them focus on developing and nurturing their own strengths, which is so important. And in the world of twice exceptionality, they always talk about focusing on the gifts, but it's true for all of us, whether you're twice exceptional or not, we're all good at something. Mm -hmm. And we all have a relative pattern of strengths and weaknesses. So, you know, thinking about ways you can incorporate strengths into uh, the lessons. Uh, an example of this is Temple Grandin uh, was really into doors. And when she was in third grade, she was having a terrible time with poetry, <laughs> just was not into the poetry thing. And so, her third grade teacher found a bunch of poems about doors and taught her poetry through those poems. And so, that's an example of using her interests and you know, strengths in order to help her learn the material she needed to learn. So, that's just a nice way to do that. And the Temple Grandin movie is really great because it does highlight uh, teachers who did this for her. Um, you know, later she had a teacher who had her focus on, you know, a science experiment around how to help animals. And she was working, you know, in a stable or whatever and doing some work that she was passionate about and then the other kids could then see how amazing she was at what she was doing. So, you know, thinking about how to incorporate those strengths in is really important. One thing I notice is that parents and teachers, when I ask them what are the child's strengths, they stick to cognitive and academic strengths. And those are important. So, a cognitive strength might be he can focus on a topic of interest or she has an amazing memory academic strengths, obviously, you know, reading, writing, math, that kind of thing. But I think it's just as important, if not more important, to think about behavioral strengths and character strengths. You know, so an example of a behavioral strength is self-advocacy. So even if a child maybe doesn't go about it in the most effective way, the fact that they know what they need and they're advocating for themselves with the adults around them is an unbelievable strength that needs to be nurtured and expanded on for sure. So, that's an example of a behavioral strength. And then a character strength, um, as Sarah mentioned before, just thinking about 
things like honesty and having a strong moral compass as strengths and how to incorporate those and and make the most of those. Those are really important. So yeah, you know, just reframing your thinking instead of focusing on the negative, like he always corrects me, (laughs) just like Donna was saying, you know, reframe that as positive. He has a strong sense of integrity, right? And so, I think that reframing can be really helpful. Sometimes people get very defensive about that. Noticing a strength out loud in front of the other children. So, one of the things that can sometimes happen to these kids is the teachers are criticizing them all the time. The other kids take that up, right? So, it leads to bullying and not being accepted. And so, if the teacher is modeling acceptance and appreciation of the person, then the other kids will do that too. Giving the child an opportunity to deep dive on topics they enjoy is always a good idea for anyone. And using their interests to help them learn things they might not otherwise be interested in. So, I gave that example about the doors. Another one is having the autistic kid help younger kids at recess. So, just say you can be a mentor for this other kid or you can help them figure out how to navigate third grade interactions or whatever. So, just having them mentor other kids. And then, like Donna said, you know, just all attempts at self-advocacy do need to be respected. And very often, they are not. And sometimes the way they self-advocate might might not feel so great, but, you know, underneath that they are trying to tell you what they need and what might be true for them. And so, that's important. The truth of the matter is a lot of these suggestions on how teachers and parents can support their kids in school and in life is just part of good, responsive teaching, education, parenting. Yep. And it's sort of just reminding us of those basic tenets of how we show up for the kid that we have, right? It's all about the kid that we have either in our home or in our classroom is how do we help them get what they need out of the experience and what we want them to get out? What is the next best step for them? So I loved that as a reminder of what is good for autistic kids and autistic adults, but it's also just good for people. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And we're on a podcast, so nobody can see, but Sarah and I are like vigorously nodding along as you're saying all of that. Absolutely. (laughs) 100%. So now that we're paying attention to all these strengths, we really have to learn how to help them use them and use them in school and use them outside of school. But let's talk about accommodations. There's the obvious ones, but what are some that we might not know that we should be asking for. I guess I'll start with some obvious ones that I might have a little twist on, and then I'll I'll go to ones that I don't see a lot, but I often recommend. So one really, really common one, some people call it priority seating near the teacher. I would call it strategic seating and explicitly say that students should have a big say in where they sit in each classroom. So it's not just about their main classroom. It's about where they are in art, where they are in music. If there's, you know, some aspect of PE every single class during the day, because one student might want to sit at the front of the room near the teacher in 
a math class for some reason, but in reading for a different reason, they want to sit in the back of the room. Maybe reading is right after lunch and they're stressed out and they need to be able to fidget and they're self-conscious about fidgeting. So they want to be in the back of the room at that point in the day. Maybe there's one class where they've been seated next to a kid who chews gum and this student's really sensitive to the sound of chewing. The student has to be part of the decision and it may not be the same in each classroom. Some kids need to sit right by the door because they need to leave the minute class is over because the crowded hallways overwhelm them or because they're so worried about getting to their next class on time, right? Lots of different reasons. And along with this, just working with the student about the sensory experience in every classroom that they're in during the day. There are different sensory experiences in different classrooms, in the art class, in the music class, that sort of thing. And the other thing I see a lot that I might have a different twist on is breaking down larger assignments into smaller parts. And that's true and that's necessary and helpful for a lot of kids. But it's also true that some autistic kids don't easily see the big picture or what is the teacher really looking for. And so being able to see a finished product of like, this is the big picture of what we're going for here. This is the main idea before you then break it down into the parts can be helpful. I would argue that that's helpful for everybody in the classroom, Steph. That is <laughs> very much me. I have to see the final product and that helps me get through the parts for sure when it comes to writing, for sure. Yeah, 100%. I agree. And as I've said, I have ADHD and I have this dream, this secret dream of writing an ADHD-friendly cookbook because the way recipes are written, I need to see like how everything is going to end up being combined in my brain before I can start a recipe. Does that make sense? Oh. Yeah. So now I'm in this. (laughs) Would you want the picture of the final product, the picture of the component parts? You want a visual? Personally, I'm not a visual person. I'm a verbal person. So I want bowl one and underneath bowl one, the list of ingredients with one word like whisk or blend right? Bowl two, the list of ingredients that are going in bowl two and one word like stir, you know, and then maybe step three, put bowl one into bowl two. two. (laughs) (laughs) Rather than just like the list of ingredients at the top of the page. And then, you know, first do this, then do that, then do this. I'm like, wait, wait, what bowl are we in? I need that big picture. You know, I do that. I reorganize my recipes in exactly that way so that I have the ingredients that go in bowl one. Like, I totally do that. That's so funny. I never thought of that. Okay, cookbook publishers. (laughs) There's an opportunity here for sure. Unfortunately, Sarah and I can't write it because we promised our husbands we would never write another book, but somebody else could do it. (laughs) Well, give that two to three years and then you can maybe think about it again. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And the whole time I was sitting there thinking one of my best friends has helped me build a lot of furniture throughout my adulting years. And she looks at it completely opposite when looking at those Ikea directions. She wants to see the back first and needs to see all the different parts. And I'm like, just give me the part and tell me how this goes. And I'll just copy exactly that and just move through it. And she starts with the end in mind. Uh Uh-huh. And we're just completely opposite. We always talk about it too. That's so interesting for cooking as well. That makes so much sense. Okay. 
Yeah. And when I think about how long it took me to figure out that this is how I learn and this is how I process information and the amount of time and energy I wasted earlier in my life because I didn't know that about myself. And one of the biggest gifts we can give our students is to teach them what works for them. I was thinking about that. The language you used, I'm already forgetting. It's not preferential seating. It's strategic seating in the classroom. Yeah. I was thinking about what that requires both the awareness from the teacher for a younger student to be able to see like what's happening around. Right. And then there's like the functional component of like, sometimes you're not always able to just have a different seat in every classroom. So you have to sort of navigate what works best in most scenarios for that kid. But then for the older kids who are traveling from class to class to know what their sensory experience is in that class is first going to take them going to that class and then seeing what the dynamic and the culture of that particular classroom, what has emerged. So it takes a very high level of metacognition, awareness of their own experience to be able to have that sort of reflective conversation. And that's why you need talented and skilled and understanding professionals to sort of help them and parents to help them sort of like know which guiding questions to ask in order to get that information out of them. And to observe behavior too, right? Because sometimes kids aren't so aware of what's going on for them. So you are trying to help them figure that out. You know, so if you ask an open-ended question, like, where do you want to sit in the classroom? They might not really have any idea. And so you have to guide them and help them learn about themselves. And then be open to it changing. For sure. I I was thinking about, like you said, sitting by the door because they're sitting there anxious about the hallway or they need to use the restroom between classes and... Or they need a break and they need to step out for a second or... Yeah, just all of that, being aware, you know, what are those accommodations to help them get so that they're not sitting there for the last 15 minutes of class thinking about they need to make sure they're at the next class on time and missing the homework. Right. And so much of it may require some trial and error Yeah, and say, well, let's try this. Let's try you sitting by the door for a week and just notice how it goes. And it may take that for them to realize, oh, that worked better for me. Yeah. I like it. Well, I have more. Tell us. So one of them is an agreement not to call on the student unless they have their hand raised. Mm -hmm. It's a simple thing so they can help manage their anxiety. Having a quiet space to eat lunch with, you know, one or two friends if they want. But the cafeteria, the smells, the sounds, the being jostled by people, the noises, the chewing, that experience, that 30 minutes may make them unable to learn for the rest of the afternoon. It may make them grumpy for the rest of the day. And so they're having that reaction to let them eat lunch someplace quiet can make a huge difference. And I would say the same thing for big events like pep rallies and other large assemblies. They can be really overwhelming. Now, if a student wants to go to those things, by all means, they should absolutely go. But checking in with autistic students and saying, How do you think this will be for you? Would you like to go to the media center and read a book instead? You know, that kind of thing. And again, it might take some trial and error before they learn, oh, I thought I would like that pep rally. But in reality, I was shot for the rest of the day. And maybe I shouldn't go to the next pep rally, right? This just takes profound trust with somebody and the vulnerability that these autistic kids have to have to like 
have these conversations without feeling ashamed about it. That takes trust with that adult who's advocating and who's looking out. It's a really, really good point. You know, as a psychologist, I've been interested in some recent research that shows that if we ask about a certain behavior, symptom, trait in a positive way, we are much more likely to get a rich response from it. So let's say I want to know if a child ever stims, you know, do you ever have repetitive behavior? Right. <laughs> it's not likely to, to yield very much. But you know how I would say something like that is, you know what some kids tell me? Some kids tell me they have certain little things they like to do over and over again, because it just feels right. It just helps them in different ways, or it feels good. And I might give some examples and say, I'm wondering if you're like some of those kids and you have some little things you like to do that are really helpful to you, saying it in a positive way. And I think the same could be true for these kinds of accommodations. Some kids tell me that going to big assemblies is hard for them and it makes them just a bit tired and overwhelmed. And those kids do better in the media center. And I wonder if maybe you're one of those kids kind of thing, you know? Mm. You know, Donna, you're bringing up an important point about um what's called internalized ableism, right? So a lot of our kids, you know, know that they're supposed to go to the assembly and that all the other kids are going to the assembly and that people will think they're weird if they don't go to the assembly. And so they think that somehow they're broken because they can't do it. And then they try to power through it to their own detriment. And if you ask them, you know, well, do you need an accommodation or, or whatever, then they'll say, oh, no, no, I'm fine. And then they just completely fall apart. So, there's that internalized idea of who they are supposed to be and what they are supposed to be able to do that does drive their description and thinking about their own ways of being. Well said. Yeah, definitely well said. So we want to make sure that in this episode, we give you both the opportunity to share more about these books that are coming out in June and July of 2023. So what would you like our audience to know? We've linked those books in the show notes so our audience can easily grab them. But what would you like to share about those books? Well, Sarah and I share a missionary zeal to help autistic people be recognized and understood because so many of them are not recognized as autistic. They're misunderstood. They're misdiagnosed. It's such a tremendously huge problem. And so that's why we decided to write a book. And we wrote our little hearts out and turned our book in last year to Rutledge. And Rutledge got back to us and said, you wrote two books <laughs> by accident. So that's how it ended up, how our one book became two. The first book describes, and it's called, Is This Autism? A Guide for Clinicians and Everyone Else. We thought we were just writing it for clinicians, but as we wrote it, we realized so many other people misunderstand autism and want to understand it. And it just basically gives a detailed description of autism using the diagnostic criteria as the guide. And so it's for clinicians, it's for educators, it's for um, parents, it's for people who think they may be autistic or are autistic. I mean, truly, there's nobody who doesn't have autism in their life. And so many people don't have a good understanding of it. And we also talk about co-occurring challenges and autistic strengths in that book. 
And then the second book is really meant just for clinicians who may diagnose autism, and it walks them through a diagnostic process and how to, in a neurodiversity affirmative way, really understand the person's experience, the person's story, to know whether or not they're autistic and what that means for them and how to have a meaningful conversation about it. I love it. We're excited. Continue this conversation over on Patreon, but thank you so much for taking the time to share your expertise and have these really important conversations, not just with the autistic community, but with everybody because it is so prevalent. Yeah. And thanks for writing the books because I think it's going to help a lot of people. And tell your husbands we said that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we will. (laughs) Have a great week. Have a great week, Smarties.